Church families, we continue to worship this morning. I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. We're in chapter 4 because we have walked through the first three chapters as we this fall are going through Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. We come now to chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. I'll give you time to turn with me in your copy of God's Word. You'll see it on the screen Hear the word of the Lord starting in verse 1, and we will go to verse 8, but I'll stop in verse 2. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Notice with me the first word. It's a transitional word here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It is the word finally, and at first glance, it seems a bit disingenuous of Paul to say finally when he's got two more chapters left. He's got 46 more verses left. We hear finally, and we think in inclusion, I'm wrapping it up, I'm landing the plane, and Paul is just getting the plane off the ground at chapter 4. It's kind of like a football coach. I don't know how many of you had high school football coaches that were like this. Every coach coach that I have observed in uh, elementary, middle school, high school, I don't know about this at college, but there's a tendency with coaches to come toward the end of the practice, and if you've been there, they'll say, last play, last play, which means you're going to be out there for another 30 minutes running that same play again and again and again. So Paul says finally, and and he he doesn't mean last play. He's got a lot of plays left in these next two chapters for us. I'll tell you what he is doing, though. This this is a bridge. This, This word finally is a bridge that is bridging the previous three chapters, which really are introductory matters. Paul's writing to a church that he planted. Acts chapter 17 is the historical reference to this. Silas, Timothy, they plant the church in Thessalonica. They're only there three weeks before they're run out of town. And so Paul has three weeks to lay a foundation. And in these three chapters, in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, he is saying, hey, I really want to get back and see you again. I love you. I have heard how you are being persecuted and you remain steadfast. Your steadfastness has encouraged me. Three chapters, it's an introduction. Now Paul moves to some of the central exhortations. But notice that Paul is not writing all of these things to them that they have not heard. Again, look with me in verse 1 and verse 2. Notice these phrases, as you receive from us. Verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you. Paul's not coming in these next two chapters to say, here's a a host of new teachings that I want to lay upon you. No, again and again, he is saying, the three weeks that we were there, there together, I laid a foundation, and now like a good teacher, what is this good teacher doing? He's reviewing, he's reiterating, he's honing in. Oftentimes in our cultural moment, we want to, we, we, we long for novelty, we long for something new. But Paul reminds us that sometimes we need in fresh ways to be reminded of familiar truths to live them out faithfully today. It isn't that we need all of this new teaching of things that we've never heard before. Actually, what Paul is saying to the the Thessalonians and what he says to us is sometimes we just need to be reminded of familiar truths. 
and to hold on to those deeply and dearly and to put them into practice. I love the way Paul says this. You're already doing this, he says. I I urge you to do it more and more. Continue in faithfulness is what he's saying. Now notice that Paul is describing in these two verses of chapter 4 what it looks like to please God. Now, I hope you understand that he isn't saying this is what it means to become a Christian. Actually, he is saying that now that you are followers of Christ, you desire to please him. As you have been captured by his spirit, so you're going to live in such a way that that looks different. It's one way that Paul is saying genuine faith makes a genuine difference in your life and my life. Genuine faith in Jesus makes a genuine difference in the way that we live our lives. Now, how would Paul begin to to hone in on this? When when he says, this is a life that's going to please God, you would expect if you were giving Paul advice as a follower of Christ in the 21st century, well, Paul, you need to tell him about praying more. Paul, you need to tell him about giving more. You need to tell him about serving more. You can have a whole laundry list, and he's he's going to get to a lot of this. But notice where Paul starts first. Chapter 4, verse 3 through seven, wonderful reminder, very specific that the will of God is always our purity. Uh, Hear Paul's words, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how uh, how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God, verse 7, has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. These are very specific words. They're encompassing words. Did you notice this? That he says, do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? Do you know what the will of God is for your life? He's not talking about turning right and when you think you might need to turn left. He's not talking about career choice. He's not talking about, uh, the, he, he is saying the will of God for your life is your sanctification. And notice that he says that is clearly to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, Paul's got much more to say about the will of God. He is not saying that this is the only aspect of the will of God. In the next 46 verses, he's going to talk about prayer without ceasing, He's going to talk about being faithful in your workplace. He's going to talk about being joyful in the midst of adversity and difficulty. But Paul is saying, and he is certainly saying, that we are living outside of God's good plan for human flourishing when we are living and dwelling in sexual immorality. He's not saying, hey, get get a group together. Get a little test group together, and I'm going to pitch this out to see what you think about it. He he says very clearly, just stay away from sexual immorality. And then you know you, you are walking in a direction that is the very sanctification of your life. Sanctification can be a a theologically hefty word here. So let's just pull that off the top shelf here. Let's walk around with it a little bit, just remind you of what you know as a follower of Christ. That, that you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. What do I mean by that? Well, that's why these words, justification, sanctification, and glorification, are really helpful. Just think of a race. 
a race, there is a moment in time where the gun goes off and you start. That is, Christian, your justification. That is when you, dead in your sins, placed your faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God dwelled in you, converted you, regenerated your heart. You went from death spiritually to life spiritually. The Spirit of God saved you, converted you. That's the beginning of the race. It's justification. Sanctification, what Paul's talking about here, is the actual race of the Christian life. There's going to be some hills to it. There are going to be some turns to it. It's going to be hard and arduous at times, but you don't run it alone. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You don't run it alone. You run it in a community called the church. Paul's talking about the running of the Christian race And one of the ways that you honor God in the race is through your holiness and your sexual purity. The end of the race, the finish line, go back to that analogy here, is what theologians have called your glorification. You come to the very end of the race, and that is when the the shackles of sin are forever released. And the sin that so easily entangles you, it, it doesn't have any strength or power over you. You see him not through a veil, that is God, but you see him face to face. That is the destination of every follower of Christ. Even if you're here today and you say, you know, the race is hard. Even if you are here today and you say, you know, I really, I'm taking a break from running the race. This destination is sure for you. It is sure for us. So Paul says, this is the running of the race. This is our sanctification, that lifelong process where we look more like Jesus. What does it look like? Well, we're called to self-control. We're called to honor God and to live lives that are set apart from him. In this world, we're called to live lives of holiness. And out of all the ways that Paul could hone in on what holiness looks like, he, he brings it to this place that is very personal, no doubt, but it is very public also, and that is sexual holiness. It's tempting for us to say, oh, Paul, that's easy for you to say. 2,000 years ago, things were just so much more simpler. Things were so much more Mayberry-ish. You talking there to the church at Thessalonica, if you only could imagine all the the difficulties about sexual purity that we face that you know not of. And of course, Paul would have no concept of the, frankly, the technological advancements that we have here and the prevalence of these things. But you need to understand that Thessalonica was a major thoroughfare, major city. It was bustling in every way. Scholars call it sort of the Las Vegas of Macedonia. So when you look back historically, prostitution was rampant in Thessalonica. Adultery was prominent in Thessalonica. It actually, in many cases, was expected of the men. It wasn't the exception. It was actually just the ebb and flow of normal marriage 2,000 years ago. Homosexuality, widely practiced. I think Paul would want us to hear there's just nothing new under the sun. There are different manifestations of this. Certainly there's a prevalence when these things, pornography was known to the Apostle Paul. Your phone in the back of your pocket, that was not known. But there is nothing new under the sun. One historian talking about Thessalonica described it this way. Much like our world today, the Greco-Roman world viewed sex as simply another biological function, just like eating or drinking. 
When you were hungry, you ate, and when you were thirsty, you drank. In the same way, when you craved sex, you had sex. No restrictions, no guilt. It was simply accepted, and it was readily available if you desired it. The Thessalonians were immersed in this culture, and doubtlessly some of those who followed Christ were former participants in this culture. So lest we think Paul doesn't know the unique challenges of his word to our day, his word to his day in many ways echoes the way you would hear it as they heard it then. Paul says followers of Christ are to live lives that are distinctive in a sensualized and sexualized world. And he uses two words in verse 6. Do you see them there? One's transgression and one is wrong. That when we cross over and, and we live in a life of impurity, Paul says it is a wrong. We can understand that, that God has a standard and ultimately we deviate from that standard. Transgression is this metaphor that's really interesting. It's, it's sort of a boundary line that is drawn that we intentionally step over. And what Paul is saying here is that God has drawn lines in his world that aren't for our restriction nor our repression, but they are for our flourishing. They are for you and me and us and our communities and our world to live abundant lives. And God draws these lines, not in an arbitrary way, but he draws these lines in, in creation itself, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and he says, the gift of sexual intimacy is my idea. It is my gift, and I give it to, uh, to, to this world in the confines of a husband and wife marital relationship to death do them part. And he gives us these wonderful boundaries, and he says, go and be fruitful. Go and multiply. I don't know if you know this, but the first command in the Bible is connected to this very truth. Be fruitful. Adam and Eve, go and reproduce. So sexual intimacy is God's design, God's idea, and he desires for it to be an important part of human flourishing. And it's easy for us to be real timid on this subject. I don't want to preach about this. The only reason I'm preaching about this right now is that chapter 3 is before chapter 4, and chapter 4 is what is here. I mean, this is it. I walk through books of the Bible, and it is here. I don't enjoy standing up before you at 8.30 and 9.45 and 11 and speaking, but God has placed a call upon me, and I didn't get the opportunity when he called me to the ministry to write the script. And so I sit under the authority of what comes next, and I can feel this sense of, be timid about this, David. I nuance this a little bit more. It sounds old-fashioned. This sounds, well, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like the cultural heresy of our day. The worst thing, it seems, that we can do in our day is to draw just, frankly, any boundary. It is much easier for us to be tempted just to erase boundaries, redraw them in the name of inclusion and acceptance. Everyone is under the tent, and what you think is right and what I think is right, and we'll just agree. And, and, and that is the moment that we feel. But there are boundaries all around us that help us flourish in life. You don't have to just go looking to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when you get your kids that are 15, they get their learner's permits, and you put them on the road, you tell them those lines on the interstate, they are your friends. Stay in the lines. 
It's not arbitrary that you drive on the right side of the road. It is there so you avoid the wreckage that can come. You, you ignore this to your folly. You ignore this to, to ultimately your harm. So keep it between the lines. Last night I was with Danielle and Hayden, Luke, and Jonathan. We made the pilgrimage over to Tuscaloosa to watch a nail-biter of a game. It was, <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Some wonderful church members were very gracious to let us go and watch Mississippi State score their first touchdown in 14 years in Tuscaloosa right there, <laughs> with about one second left. So, fun game. We enjoyed being there, and it was fun uh, being there. The food was great. Uh, Mississippi State, but those of you might not know this, but Mississippi State is, has deep connections to, to me, and so we're, we're state fans, and I think we were the only state fans that were in a 30-mile radius of Tuscaloosa last night. <laughs> we timidly said, hell state one time, and we're silenced the rest. But think about Bryce Young. Boy, he is just absolutely, it doesn't matter who, who you're rooting for. I mean, he's just so fun to watch. And so elusive in the pocket. He's so elusive when the pocket breaks down. And he makes defensive linemen that are five-star recruits just, just look like they've never played football before. I mean, he's just that good. And just to watch someone at the top of their game to be able to be so elusive. But could you just imagine what it was to, 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 to watch a football game with no boundaries? I mean, four downs to get a first down, hey, that sounds good. Sounds good to you, but hey, you want to do five downs to get a first down? Or maybe six or seven. How about, how about each offensive team gets to decide how many downs, and actually more than that, how about you decide how many yards you need to have a first down? Ten, that seems a little antiquated, a little old-fashioned. How about let's go with five? How about two? How about one? The boundaries? Who has, who has the ability to say that person is out of bounds? I mean, wouldn't it be fun just to watch Bryce Young to be able to come across and scamper across the end and instead of going forward for, for positive yardage, just go to the sideline and use the cheerleaders as a shield? You know, wouldn't that be fun? And then he could jump over the physical therapy uh, tables there, and he could scamper into the stands, and then he, he could run out onto the campus. Wouldn't it be fun just for everybody in the stadium to watch the running back or to watch the quarterback to just do whatever he wanted to? And the answer to that, of course, is no. The, the boundaries are there for the flourishing of the game, for the safety of the players, for the joy of the fans. The boundaries don't restrict. They actually lead to joy in the game. And Paul's writing to a church that was really in a cultural moment where anything went, anything goes. And he says, don't be like the Gentiles. They know not God. They're not followers of him. Don't be like them, but be, be confident that God has created a world, and he's created a world not accidentally but intentionally for the flourishing of every individual, every child, every family, every community. Paul would say to the Thessalonians, don't waver on this. And he would say to us, if you think you're out of step with the world, join the club. I was too. 
we were also. He says always it's God's will to avoid sexual impurity. He gives us just one practical way to actually do this. And it's found nestled away in verse 4. And it's this phrase, controlling our body. That word body can be translated vessel. But the idea here is whether you're single or you're married, that there are certain forms of temptation that are going to come your way, come all of our way, different manifestations of this. But Paul is saying, be be aware, admit, avoid. Of course he is saying that. Boundaries are not puritanical. They're actually prudential. They're wise. Of course Paul would would have a word for us to think about our, our world and the sexual immorality that can come through our phones and what we stream. And of course he would want us to, to think wise about setting healthy boundaries and not going certain ways that entice us to lust. Of course Paul would do that. But, but don't leave a message like this thinking that your purity and our purity is just this whole list of don't do this, don't watch this, don't listen to this. Paul would want us to hear that the pursuit of purity is ultimately the pursuit of a person, and that person is Jesus. And our Savior would tell us, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And your purity is ultimately the overflow. It is birthed out of the overflow of you abiding deeply with your Savior. And you're drinking deeply of him in prayer and his word. And out of the overflow of Christ in you, the siren song of sin, it doesn't hold sway because you've filled yourself with the word. And the hunger of the world will not satisfy. And, and you, you change your taste buds and you, and you drink of him. And it, when, when we are spiritually famished and when we're spiritually malnourished, we're like the person that goes into the grocery store and we haven't eaten in, in several meals and we come in and, and everything to us looks like we, we want to eat it right then. And the junk food that is around us, it just cries out for us. And, and Paul is saying to us that sexual purity is found in a deep abiding relationship with our Savior. So there are just two points to this message. One is the will of God is our purity. And finally, as we come to the end of this section in verse 8, To ignore the will of God is our folly. Notice what Paul says, that no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter. We've talked about that because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. Interesting that he says that. As we told you beforehand and we solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul talks about sexual purity with a vertical nature and horizontal nature. That the Spirit of God lives in us, and when we sin in our sexuality, that ultimately it is an affront to a holy God, that the Spirit takes up residence with us. And horizontally, notice in this passage here, that when we do this, it's easy for us to think, oh, no one knows, it's just consenting adults, it's just an individual doing and making this decision here. But notice what Paul says, that when we do this, ultimately we transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now what Paul is getting at here is that God has created this world where every person, male, female, they're image bearers. They're made in the image of God. And when you take someone who's an image bearer, who we should see as a brother and sister in Christ, and we ultimately see them as an object of our desire and, and the pursuit of our lust, that what we are doing in that moment is we're stomping on them as image bearers. We're marring the image of God. 
and we see them for our satisfaction and our pleasure. And Paul says, no, you're sinning against your brother. You're sinning against your sister in a very specific way when you do this here. So let's honor God. Let's honor God with our purity here. And we're called ultimately to love our brothers and sisters. We're called ultimately to fight for purity in our marriages. Why? Now notice in this passage here that God says through the Apostle Paul that he has not called us for impurity but in holiness. As we told you before and solemnly warned you because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. God hates impurity. He, he hates the sin. He hates what it does as it wrecks families. He hates what it does when it mars our view of him as a holy God. And he doesn't sit by idly and say, you know, boys will be boys. That's just the way of the world. Because he is a holy God, he has a personal connection to each and every one of us, and he wants what's best for all of us. And what is best for us to be able to walk with God and what is best with us to pursue God is to do it in the context of purity. And Paul has no hesitation calling out a, a fear of the Lord. We, we hardly ever talk about that outside of the church or in the church, but sometimes it might be helpful for us just to dust off this concept, the fear of God, we got Halloween coming before us. Don't think of, of God as this vicious monster who's under your bed trying to scare you. The fear of the Lord is just reverence and respect. It is reverence and respect for a holy God. And it is ultimately saying to God, we submit to your word and we submit to your way because we reverence you and we respect you. And that's what matters the most to us. Now, I want to talk to four of you in four minutes as we land this plane of the sermon. One is I want to talk to the skeptical. I want to talk to the single. I want to talk to the married. And I want to talk to the regretful. I do not doubt that this message to some of you here falls sort of on deaf ears. Yeah, David, I'm a bit skeptical about that. And here we have to ask ourselves, and I would just ask you as a follower of Christ or one who is exploring Christianity, who is drawing the boundaries? And what if, what maybe is culturally out of step, it certainly is, what if what sounds restrictive to you is actually designed by a holy God and it is actually true? Who gets to decide? You or him. So process that. Think about that. Ask yourself, what, what is the standard of truth in very important matters? Skeptical? Maybe single. Anytime we talk about sexual purity, anytime we talk about marriage, and God has designed this in the flourishing of a male and female to death do them part, there are people here that are single that say, here we go again, talking right past me. Here we go again, the church is solely talking to families with three kids, and, and, and I'm sitting here, and there's not a word for me, but yes, there is a word for you. Fight for purity is the word. And understand that where you are in the calling and the season of your life of singleness is, is the very place our Savior was for all 33 years of his life. 
And he lived the ultimate life of joy and abundance, and he knew not marital intimacy. And he was perfect in every way, but tempted in every way. And our Savior gives us a preview of coming attractions. When we get to heaven, what the family of God will be is not husband and wives in their individual mansions, but it's brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is a preview of our coming attraction. And so singleness is not a second-class citizen of the kingdom of God. It is a holy calling that our very Savior had, and it is a holy calling to honor Him in this season of singleness. Thirdly, those of you that are married. And I just remind you to look at your ring. I remind you to be a person who fights for purity in the context of your marriage. I remind you to be a person that, is free, uh, that knows that God has called you to love and to cherish your bride and to love and to cherish your husband and uh, call you to be reminded that you're called to care for one another. Well, and purity in marriage is never accidental, but it's always intentional and it's always born out of a deep well of intimacy, first and foremost, with your Savior. Your love for your spouse is not enough for a flourishing, abundant marriage. It must first and foremost be born out of a deep intimacy with a God who loves both of you so well and so deeply. And to the regretful, it is, it is easy to hear the specificity of this message. And if sort of a target has come around you, you would think, man, I, I'm just leaving really overwhelmed in guilt. If you are here this morning and you, like all of us, have crossed the line of immorality, we have, every one of us in this sanctuary are sinners in need of a Savior. And all of us fall short of God's standard. And if you're here this morning and sexual immorality has been that, that, that part of your life in your present or in your past where there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of regret. I just want you to hear God loves you. God loves you in the midst of the rubble. He loves you in the midst of the mistake. He loves you in the midst of your sin because he loves us all. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So every one of us in this room need to hear the love of God that propels us. Can you go and, and rewrite history? And the answer is no. Can you go and rewind and redo? And the answer is no. But you know what you can do through the love of our Savior is you can take steps forward in his forgiveness right now. Aren't you grateful that he tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Paul was writing to a church awash in impurity. And the word of the Lord calls to us to be different and to shine as those who desire him more than anything else. This was his will to the Thessalonians, and this is his will to us now. So let's pursue his will, and let's live lives that are pleasing to God. Let us pray.